Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noel, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Lynn Christian, welcome to Listening with Leaders. You are the founder of Soul Salt Inc., which can be found at soulsalt.com, and you provide really high-level coaching services. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. And my background. Well, my background, um, I didn't intend to ever be a coach, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that's yeah. great. Do you? Yes. So uh, I don't know where to start, but I'll start where my profession started. I uh, wanted to become a teacher. I thought I would be an attorney, but things changed a little bit. And I had a cathartic moment where I decided not to follow law and to be a teacher uh for I was in my own crisis and thought what what can I do with my life here I am in high school really in some some deep depression and recognized that there were people in my life who had inspired me in elementary school and so I decided to become a school teacher and I thought that's what I do with the rest of my life because I was good at it and I enjoyed it. And then I could see this, what seemed like a freight train of concerns. One one of the, maybe two freight trains. One was the standardized test that we should all, you know, and I'm air quotes, uh, measure people's worth by how well they do on a test. Pretty horrible. I, I could that wasn't palatable to me at all. And there was so much more to these children than their test scores. And then the other thing that was happening is I was seeing society crumble around these children, meaning that when I first taught my first class, it really seemed delightful. And and by the time I finished, it was not uncommon to have three, four, five children in, in a classroom of 30 to 35 kids struggling with uh, terrible, terrible forms of abuse and neglect. And of course, if they were suffering from that, you know, makes you wonder what did the parents experience? And so I was spending a lot of my time on life skills. And that's when I became familiar with Daniel Goleman's work, Emotional Intelligence and why it matters more than IQ. And I started integrating that into the classroom mm -hmm. and the systems I was following. I was using inquiry-based learning, which was being studied in Tucson, Arizona. So I flew down there, uh, self-funded myself and went down and studied with them and how they did what they did and came back and created an inquiry-based classroom. And my kids just caught on fire. I was teaching sixth graders and there was one child that was following. So the premise is following your own questions. I knew if I could meet that intersection between interest and learning that the children would stick to it. And so we could teach them a lot of things when we gave them time every day to work on those things that they were just solely interested in. So that was they had to follow an inquiry question. 
And so everyone was following their own question. One little guy was wondering, why do psychologists use Mises with rats? And another, uh, a set of girls were teaming up and they wanted to know about hippies in the 60s. (laughs) (laughs) And so they would do these inquiry projects where they would do research and they were they were utilizing the media and the, the library so well. And it became kind of threatening to the people around me because my students were engaged. And because they were engaged, we could also slip in mathematics and social science and we could uh, study history and we could bring in reading and, and language skills. And and I recognized that I didn't belong in education if I was going to teach this way. Like I didn't belong in a public school and I could see charter schools and private schools starting to take off and actually got hired to be part of one of those away from the public system. But I knew that wasn't tenable either uh, because I was changing. And so I asked the best network person that I knew uh, if I was evolving, who should I enlist? And she said, a business coach. And I said, I think maybe I could even make it in business. I I don't know. I've only been in academics. And she said, talk to this business coach. And I did. And it changed my life. Hmm. She worked with me and I advanced my career and started working for Franklin Covey. Uh, Some people know uh, Stephen R. Covey, who wrote Seven Habits. Uh, Half that company was founded by him. The other half by Hiram Smith, who created the Franklin Planner. And so it became the Franklin Covey Company. And they hired me to write curriculum for them. Hmm. So I found a way in business. And um, but in the meantime, I was so taken by the lifestyle and the advancement of personal development that this coach had that I asked her, you know, what what makes you so different than these other people? And she said, I think it might be my coach training. And so I took some money out of my savings and started coach training in the evenings and in the early mornings and at lunch hours, because I was like, I want that as a finishing school. So that's how I started into coaching was learning about it. And then, of course, they require that you have some clients. And then it turned out I was really good at it and I liked it. And so eventually I, I created my own business. And by the time I left Franklin Covey, I'd worked up to be director of innovation for Franklin Covey Coaching. And I'd, I'd graduated from coach training and had uh, jumped through the hoops and earned my MCC master certification through the ICF. And so I've been a student of leadership and business entrepreneurship, uh, performance, strength-based psychology, neuroscience, since anything that can assist my clients to advance, um, that I'm a student of that sort of thing. So that's in a nutshell. How's that? <laughs> that's a pretty good journey. What do you, what, what do you think uh, gets you excited in the morning these days? My work. Um, yeah. So, so assisting people, guiding people to have their own coming out of self. You know, who who really are they? Mm-hmm. And they, this fascination I have with deep identity, I find that I was just on a mastermind call with um, three little um, millennials who are these bright up and coming businesswomen in their own entrepreneurial ventures. And when they stay true to their deep identity, they prosper in their business. And so, and that's same with executive leaders when they get really clear about their deep identity, not ego, deep identity, they become better leaders. And so my work fascinates me every day I get up and assist people to unravel more parts of what makes their best self show up and what is life like when they let their best self lead. 
what is it what is what is it about yourself you think that's unique that you bring to the table that other people other coaches for example don't have well i think there are a lot of really great coaches uh one of the things that sets me apart is i'm a total advocate for the client not afraid to throw the bullshit flag when needed <laughs> and uh and I'll be somebody who will challenge you, always asking you to stretch at some point, sometimes asking you to pace yourself back a little bit because we can see exhaustion coming on. So I'm somebody who's typically fairly in tune with the people that they're working with. And uh, my work is one part art and intuition. I have a TEDx talk on the head, heart, and gut wisdom. I went to Australia and studied with Suzalu and Oka about how to hear the wisdom of the the inner soul uh that's why my company's named soul salt clients named my company <laughs> based on their experience with me and so i can bring this almost esoteric spiritual side of assisting a person to let them be seen and heard and to be themselves and then i am in a position to apply the science that i've studied of strength-based psychology the, the latest information about life leadership, the uh, reflected best self kind of research. And you put that together and there's something that's one part art, one part science that I haven't seen anybody else do. Right. right. Interesting. It's, it, that's interesting. Um, I, I had a, a parallel journey. I was a trial lawyer for 22 years. Mm-hmm. And I went back to school mid-career and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies and left the practice of law in 2000 to become a peacemaker. And my pra- my entire practice is based on neuroscience, how our brains process peace and conflict and emotions. Right. I'm, I'm really focused on emotions these days because that's really what I, what I found is that if we, if we focus on building emotional competency, which I distinguish from emotional intelligence, um, people's lives fundamentally transform. True. And yeah. I'm able to acid test that for the last 13 years in maximum security prisons with, I was a co-founder with my colleague, Laurel Copper, the prison of peace project. And we teach life prison long-termers how to be peacemakers to stop prison violence. That's amazing. It's all based on, it's all based on our entire curriculum is based on neuroscience and we get remarkable results. We've had. Yeah, you do. When you, when you follow the science, it's pretty f- yeah, it's bulletproof. With, I don't know what you're thinking is on this, but I see a lot of people out who still use old techniques and old ideas not based on science that don't work. And I just sort of shake my head. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I think there's a lot of, um, especially in this information age, and this is just my personal opinion. I could be so off of the from where the masses are. My observation is, there's a lot of pop psychology still going on, if I could call it that. That's kind of an archaic term, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And they hear one person say it, another person say it, and instead of going to a source and finding something, they throw it out. And it's it. for instance, let's talk about gratitude. Gratitude is a practice that we know has many health benefits, Has it can influence longevity and the quality of life, the way you feel about your life. We have that documented now in science. A lot of people are still saying, get up and do your gratitude practices, all the things you're thankful for, touch your heart. And while those things probably do influence 
your quality of your life. What the hard science says is it's not so much about you feeling gratitude for the things in your world. It's how do you receive someone doing something for you? How do you receive when someone says thank you? How do you receive when someone tries to give you something that means something to them? How do you handle that? If you can do, and there's a a protocol even for it, how do you identify what you feel about that? Back to this notion of feelings, Doug, I think you're really onto something. How, How does that make an impact on your life? And can you acknowledge that? What moves you the most about it? And what was the situation and what happened that precipitated this thing to occur? When you go through a practice like that, you don't even have to write it down. I mean, you you extend the benefits exponentially by writing it down and reflecting. But if you just go through it in your mind, you only need to do that a couple of times a week and you get all those benefits. That's science. Right. So there's a distinction between people just throwing out, oh, I heard gratitude's good and I know there's some science behind it and here's how I do it. And it's the best method because it's been working for me, but they're missing the fact that there is actually a richer, deeper, more sustainable, scientific way to change your neurochemistry and influence your life if you follow the protocol. It's so interesting that you should mention gratitude because one of the one of the um, pieces, one of the many parts of our Charisma Peace curriculum is teaching what we call recognition statements, mm-hmm. which is the gratitude statements. And we have it's a very specific formula, exactly the way you described it, that we teach, that we teach our students to utilize. And um, you know, along with everything else, it's it's profoundly it's a profoundly different experience for people who are serving long term and life sentences in prison to to exercise recognition or gratitude statements. You wouldn't think in prison that that would be important, but it's critical. It's critical for their lives. Very interesting. Yeah, I, like I said, I can see that we are, we, our lives are sort of on parallel tracks in many ways. Right. In coaching, um, it's interesting that you that you read Daniel Goldman's book way back when, I think it was 95 when that book came out. Yes, I, as soon as it came out, I had it. Did you ever, did you, have you ever gone back and looked at the, the academic work behind all of that? With um, Yes, and in fact, I read Antonio Damasio's book. Which one? So- uh, <laughs> yes, uh, the one that came out about the same time. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I have it on my my shelf downstairs. The Cards Error. I think that was one of the early ones. Yeah, he, uh, Damasio is incredibly influential in my thinking. Uh, yes, because he was the first first one that alerted me to the idea that we are primarily emotional beings, not rational beings. With his somatic, mm-hmm. somatic so is he call it his somatic marker theory. Yes. And uh, all of a sudden, I began to see that in my world, because I deal with conflict, that all conflict is emotional. Yeah. And conflict behavior is just emotional behavior. And it may be, it may be, you know, it's going to be defined by the arousal level and the intensity level. Um, But it's all emotional behavior. And as I now teach my graduate students, you can't solve an emotional problem with logic. It doesn't work. Right. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, yeah, the book in particular is the Cart's Air. Ah, okay. Yeah, I felt like those two books, Daniel Goleman and and literally, yes, you're right. Goleman stood on the shoulders of many scientific studies. Yeah. 
it was he got to it was almost as if he got to harvest the fruit that had been planted and nurtured over the years and years and years through the social sciences right and so yeah, yeah. the guys that invented the term coined the term uh emotional intelligence were mayor and Solovi. University of New Hampshire now, I think it's Slovi now is the president of Yale, and another guy, Caruso. And they were studying social intelligences, and they came across this idea of emotional intelligence and developed the assessment tool, which is now called the Myers-Solovi-Caruso Emotional Intelligence Test, and that's sort of the gold standard for assessing emotional intelligence. Right. Um, but it's interesting to see that <laughs> I've read a lot of the literature, and it's interesting to see how the academics look at Goleman. <laughs> Not too favorably. <laughs> no, no. But, but what he did, you know, because he, um, I don't think he proclaimed to be the social scientist. What he did was take the work and make it useful and get it out. He, 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 that, that's his great contribution is bringing emotional intelligence out from academia and making it, throwing the concept out there for people to look at. I mean, he's got a PhD. I mean, he's no dummy. No, he's smart, a man. Yeah. He's a psychologist. He's a psychologist himself, or at least his degree, his PhD is in psychology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th that's really important work. And the other thing that the other thing that uh, I, I talk about is I say you can't learn emotional intelligence because emotional intelligence is a test, just like you can't learn IQ. But what you can do is learn emotional incompetent emotional competency. And the emotional competencies, emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and cognitive empathy are the sort of the foundation, foundational skills. And if you can master those skills, then your emotional intelligence will increase. Right. So I teach, I teach those skills to people. And that's what I was doing too with my students, along with the inquiry-based learning. We were going through and learning these core competencies, right. if you will, of emotional intelligence, delaying gratification, self-soothing, the whole gamut. Mm -hmm. Empathy. Empathy. Um, have you ever heard the term affect labeling? Have you ever run across that? No, I haven't. Affect labeling is is an oh affect labeling. Affect A F F E C T, not effect. Affect labeling. It's it's basically reflecting emotions rather than words, and it's a skill that I picked up in two thousand five just by an epiphany in a very difficult mediation. And what it allows you to do is to um, calm any angry person in 90 seconds or less. That's the title of my fourth book, in fact. And uh, it, it, a brain scanning study came out of Matthew Lieberman's lab at UCLA in 2007 that showed what happens when you listen to emotions instead of words. And essentially, when you are listening to emotions and reflecting them back to somebody, you their emotional centers are inhibited and their prefrontal cortex is activated. Right. And very, very powerful skill. Um, yeah. Lieberman is, boy, um, I loved his book, Social. Yes, that was excellent, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, that taught me, that also informed me about some of the flaws in our educational system, because he he, he talks about the task focus system and the social default mode system. And our educational system is all focused on task mode, and, and we spend no time in in learning, learning how to train the social brain. Um, and when you were talking about teaching, I was listening with great interest because you were years ahead of your time, way ahead of core curriculum. Yeah. In terms of how you were bringing emotions into the classroom. Yeah, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a comfortable place to be. I tend to be a disruptor uh, and it was probably what students needed, but it, to the point where I literally had to leave education 
because it was so threatening to the other teachers, the way I was thinking about how we educate our young and what they needed beyond academics. Did they need academics? Yes. They needed the arts. They needed to study about other cultures and they needed to understand themselves on an emotional level. You know, they needed to have the ability to come to school and get some more parenting that they weren't getting at home. And um, and then so working against that and then having peers fight against you and starting to tell fibs about what you were really about, you know, and then the, the day I came around a corner and one of these teachers, imagine standing five, nine, five, ten, with her finger down in the face of one of my students telling them they were bad because they were in Ms. Christian's class. Um, I thought, I don't belong here. I'm going to do more, more harm than good. For the 30 students I can influence for good, um, these other teachers are so upset with what I'm doing that it disrupts their ecosystem. And so I need to go. And I knew I was an innovator. And by the way, all three labels that I ever had in in a, in the corporate setting. One was a writer in the Innovation Center, uh, writing curriculum, and then I advanced to project manager in that center. Then I became the associate director over a PMO because I I received my PMP through the Project Management Institute, and so I was the associate director and I was coaching people through Franklin Covey's project management process as well as training that out and internationally, and then. Um, I was asked by the coaching arm of the company to be their director of innovation. So innovation was in my title in every one of those jobs. And I thought, okay, that that's fitting. We're education and the academics, we're pushing against the innovation and resisting the innovation. Business knew that was the cutting edge for where they could make capitalism work for them. So they hired me. And how'd that work for you? It was great. It was great. I enjoyed every single one of those jobs and made some impact. And in the PMO, I was particularly proud of the work we did in nine months. We'd accrued $4 million worth of value because we were closing projects. I was training and coaching our teams to apply our very own project management that Franklin Covey had certified as their project management process. We weren't using it necessarily on our home campus. Um, and then being part of the coaching group, there's just a part of me, again, that's an innovator and a disruptor, and I wanted to do my own work, and I wanted to be able to coach on my my materials. Uh, I ghost wrote some things for Franklin Covey, and I just, it just was time for me to do my own thing so that I had that freedom going back to what I wanted to do in my own classroom, bring out the soul of the child and let them become a better version of themselves. I do now with adults. Hmm. And it's very satisfying for you, I can tell. Yes, it is. It's it's a life's journey to get here, and it's a life a life's work. So, what do you do for fun? Oh, so many things. Um, well, I now have three grandchildren. That's exciting. And so, uh, I like to spend as much time with them as I can. I love to get outside, and so I'm an avid hiker. I have done a little bit of rock climbing, although um, the danger level on that, I. I would rather just hike the trails. I've done the the ropes and uh, and uh, and we did lose a a, a rock climber uh, from Park City this weekend hmm. because our mountains are so unstable. So I'm out in the mountains, and I've also uh, discovered 
about 14 years ago, I discovered um, fitness on an extreme level uh, to some degree for people my age. And so I started doing triathlons. Oh, wow. And then I did Spartan races with my son because he was into those. But where I've really landed is in fencing. So when I, at age 58, I picked up that and I am now a competitive fencer and go to national events and someday want to be on a national podium and be on a world team. Wow. Well, good for you. See, you just answered the question that I would have asked at the end of the show, which is what's one thing about yourself we wouldn't know unless you revealed it. And <laughs> you're a fencer. I'm a fencer. Good for you. Um, well, I mean, you live in a you live in a beautiful place there in, in Salt Lake City area where you got yeah. access to the mountains right there. That's, you know. Yeah, I can be, you know, within seven minutes. I'm on a mountainside. Somewhere. And, yeah, somewhere. And uh, and then we also have the variety. Uh, my daughter and her boyfriend uh, spent the weekend down in Escalante. So we can also go down into the Red Rock. You know, there's Zion and Bryce and not that far away from the Grand Canyon. So if we want to get to the desert and do a slot canyon, um, which I enjoy those uh, adventures as well. You got to be super careful with those two with flash floods. But right. yeah, but uh, if you you know are aware of what you're doing, there's a lot to be had here in this, this state. Wow. Excellent. So where do you see yourself going in the future as you as you mature? Yeah, as I mature. Well, I'm certainly shooting for that uh, national podium and wanting to be on a world team. And so that's usually internationally done. Uh, last year it was in Croatia. This year it's actually going to be in Florida. Um, but I'm still kind of young. I mean, it's a 10-year learning curve to get some form of mastery in this sport. And I'm behind about 18 months because I had a rotator cuff surgery repair. So uh, that is one thing. I have another book coming out. You can see over my shoulder, uh, the Soul Salt book, The Field Guide to Confidence and Purpose and Fulfillment. I have another one on reinvention. I've been a student of reinvention. And so I want to get that out. Um, I've reinvented my working and personal identity many times. Um so getting that book out, enjoying the grandkids um, even more and doing some more hiking and uh, getting out in nature. I love there are a couple of places I love to be. There's one in Idaho where I sit by the river and watch the fish jump. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said something that caught my attention about fulfillment in life. What do you th what do you think um, creates meaning in life for people? It's different for each person, typically. My best way to explain it is I work with people, and I'm just a witness on the sideline of some people, I can't say it's universal, is almost a convergence of their inner plumb line, a core value system or an inner plumb line that helps them know the difference between yes and no, hell yes and hell no, if I can use those words. Mm -hmm. And beliefs and philosophies that they have adopted for themselves and that they have accrued because of their own wisdom journey. I feel like there's almost um, a spiritual sense to it for some people. And it can also be something that converges, say, their superpowers or their strengths. You know, what Gallup and Marcus Buckingham have done with strength-based psychology. Yeah. And so, it's a, it's basically in my mind, a convergence of those things. It's also if influenced by how somebody measures success in their life. And there's a, I, I always have a possibility practice. Um, that's something unique that's uh, outlined in my 
book, it's also an element of possibility. So there's some potential, personal potential in that. And meaning comes from something that has that inner wisdom line being plucked and tuned into. So it's really an art sometimes to assist somebody and facilitate somebody to find it. Because the one thing I will not do is tell somebody what their truth is. I can guide them to places where they can excavate and find it. And then I might hold them responsible for doing something with that information. (laughs) But I will not tell you what your truth is. It's not my place to do that. So what advice do you give to young people today? We live in a very turbulent era. And uh, it must be, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a 21 or 22-year-old, maybe coming out of college, and say, what do I do with myself? Yeah. So I think it begins with finding out who is myself. Mm. Because once you understand some of these components, then it turns into an experimentation and a discovery process. It's not like sitting down and pondering and coming up with a target and then spending the rest of your life trying to hit that target. Right. It's more like sitting with yourself something hits you that you want to try you experiment you you sit back and say how did that work it's an iterative wave of innovative experimental activities that tell you this is good for me this is not good for me this resonates with me this does not and putting you in experiences that stretch you and also putting you in experiences where you learn to self-manage it's a convergence of many things and once you do that then you also need to be open to the fact, um, and this is how I define success. Um, I I defined it for myself when I was coming out of the closet uh, the first time and discovered that um, what I didn't have that I really wanted and needed were people around me who had open minds and soft hearts. And so my own metric for success is I always ask, how soft is my heart right now and how open is my mind? That comes that comes with practice. And so once these young people discover something about self and things they want to place on their map of this is an endeavor, this is a degree I want, or this is an adventure I want, or this is a job that I want, then allowing them to know that maybe in 10, 7, 12 years, they'll want to reinvent that. That's right. And so being progressive and evolving, being a generative human being, I think is... Uh, something I would tell them and tell them that life opens up your soul opens up in the forties, but your, your greatest achievements might not come till your sixties. And I'm living proof of that. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation, Lynn. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be with us. Thank you, Doug. I have one question for you. Absolutely. If I, or your listeners were to read just one of your books, which one would be the one to start with? Good question. If I, I have to say it depends, typical lawyer answer. If you want to learn about how the law does not address human conflict in a very good way, read my first book, uh, Peacemaking, Practicing at the Intersection of Law and Human Conflict. And it's a, it's not a, I wrote it as a textbook, but it's accessible to anybody. And it basically lays out a theory, the theory of human conflict, looking at it from all directions, including religion, neuro. I was the first, it's the first book, it, one of my chapter seven was the first piece ever written on the neuropsychology of peace and conflict. 
And so that's good. If you want to, if you're really interested in why international agencies are so poor at peacemaking and making agreements, read Elusive Peace. It's a critique of the International Diplomatic Corps' inability to learn modern conflict resolution techniques and the disasters that flow from that. And in particular, I, I do look at case studies, in particular, the Kenyan, Kenyan election crisis in 2008, 2009 that Kofi Annan completely blew apart. Yeah. Um, and then my last book is, if you have, if you want to stop fights and arguments forever in your life, get my fourth, my fourth book, Deescalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. And you will learn the, the foundational skill of life that we talked about earlier, ethic labeling, that will literally allow you to stop ever having a fight or argument with anyone on any subject ever again. You'll know exactly what to say, how to say it, and when to say it, no matter how intense the situation. Sounds good. Sounds like good wisdom. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, it's been a delight to meet you. So I, I, I have really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I'm going to... Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.